everybody. This is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Brandon Brown is back. Brandon, thank you for taking time out of your post-Thanksgiving, Good Friday, whatever you're doing with your day other than avoiding turkey. Happy post-tryptophan day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Brandon and I had a conversation a while back that was supposed to be about mentoring, but started off talking about trauma. And we're going to pick that up in a minute. And this is probably going to turn into a number of podcasts. But um, before we get started, Brandon, could you explain to the folks uh, like who you are and what you do and how trauma is part of this conversation? Uh, so my name is Brandon Brown, um, born and raised in West Philadelphia, graduate of St. Joe's Prep, graduate of Temple University. Uh, and currently I work as a trauma specialist consultant with the Center for Urban uh, Bioethics under the Lewis Katz School of Medicine uh, at Temple University. Uh, One of my charges is to create a trauma-sensitive school in North Philadelphia. In that space, I'm working with uh, everyone except the kids. And the notion behind that is, you know, oftentimes you've got to work with the adults before you can work with the children. And the second piece of that is one of my jobs is to try to figure out how to insert the trauma-informed care conversation into first and second year pedagogy. Okay. That's awesome. And so we're going to talk about trauma and we're also going to talk about why we're talking about in this podcast. But first, um, one of the things that you helped me understand is the trauma, as I explained to you, like when I hear the word trauma, I think of like medical shows and like this guy's a trauma surgeon and Billy's impelled on a fence post and he's got trauma. And that's not what you're talking about necessarily. No, not at all. So, I mean, if you were to think of trauma, like let's just put trauma on a continuum. So you have certain instances, which of course you would be able to see like, hey, that's traumatic. Someone getting hit by a car, you know, a bombing, someone getting hit by lightning, like those are extremes. So we might say that those are trauma with big T's. But the other thing that I think people should think about is that there are also trauma with little T's, right? Things that probably have sat with you um, and they have sort of... uh, They've been some type of an experience to which the the experience in and of itself has gotten you to think things differently and in a very unconscious way. I think oftentimes people want to look at trauma and say that, you know, people recognize the fact that they have been traumatized. Uh, I kind of sit in the position that there might have been, there are so many people out there that probably are traumatized, but they have no idea. So the example that you gave right before we started about the person in the office, can you share that one? Because that to me was a great example of, of... Yeah. So let's just try to come up with a very loose experiment. So let's say you have someone um, that worked their way up through the ranks at their job. All right. And in every position, they were just told to do. Never, never, never to give an opinion. They were told just to do. So they do and they do and they do and they do. And, but then finally they get a, um, they get a supervisor that says, well, what do you think about this? How do you think that person is really going to respond to that? They're going to be totally untrusting right. and afraid because, and because they, they were taught you're stupid. Don't think for yourself. Do what we tell you. Right. So the whole thing is like, when we look at trauma that we, we really need to look at it with regard to people's relation, relational histories you know, like if I'm coming through a background where people, where I believe people never wanted to, to, to hear my voice or never believed that I had some level of agency, um, why, when I am given the opportunity to do it, would I embrace it? 
like for me, I would kind of treat it as foreign or maybe even as a trick. Right. And then on the other side is like, if, if I always had supervisors that never gave compliments and then I actually come across a supervisor that at least complimented me or thanked me for my work, you know, that might be, believe it or not, that compliment might be a little off-putting because that's not part of, that's not part of my history. That's, that's not how I know things to happen. So the interesting thing is that in any space, and, and I think that oftentimes, you know, we want to oversimplify, oversimplify trauma. You know, we want to make it black and white. And, you know, I'm always asking people just to kind of look at it in the gray. Just look at it in the gray. And like, if we were to go back to that person and probably just like ask that person how they felt about things. Okay. You know, uh, try, to, try to get them their input. Because I would argue whether it's at work or whether it's at the hospital, um, people won't talk unless they're at home they for Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> oh, definitely <laughs> for Thanksgiving dinner. People won't talk unless they feel that they're safe and and that the person that they're talking to is a trusted individual. With, so, without without safe without safety and trust, it it's hard to move anything. So, is it safe to say then that trauma is? I mean, I, I was looking up the definition online and everything was like these really extreme violent situations, but is it anything that has like a lasting kind of anchoring impact on, it's not just your, your emotional system, it's physical as well, right? Right. So let's, if, if, if we were to come up with a definition for this conversation, what if we were to say that trauma is a sensory experience with neurological consequence? Okay. This would be a so great time for the pool story. Yes. <laughs> so back in the fall of 83, while in high school. Um, while we were I freshmen. Feel, while we were freshmen. I feel that I almost drowned in the pool. Um, I was walking around. I can't swim. You know, classmates behind me were playing water polo. Um, being from the inner city, I had no idea what a uh, Olympic-sized pool meant. I just thought it meant that that would be in a pool that you might see in the Olympics. So I'm walking around and I, I put my foot out and I don't feel anything. Um, I couldn't say anything because I was, you know, I was in some level. I, I can't even tell you how long I felt I was standing out there. But the only thing that I knew to do was kind of like make this little motion with my hands so that I could get both of my feet back up on what would be like the bottom of the pool. Um, I politely got out of the pool and to date, you know, some odd, almost 30 years later, I think at best I've only been into two pools. Um, but the interesting thing is that I'm not afraid of the ocean. Um, you know, I, I love, um, you know, I love to jet ski. I, I, I love to scuba dive. Like, I, I'm not afraid of the water. I'm, I'm not afraid of riptides. I'm, I'm not afraid of any of that. And oftentimes when people hear the story, they go, well, that doesn't make sense. And to understand trauma, it shouldn't be that it doesn't make sense to me, but, or excuse me, that it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. Okay. Right. And, you know, there, people want to say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. And I'm like, but it's not your life. It's not your narrative. That's not how, you know, your brain made the connections and said, this is how things are going to happen. So you have no rhyme, reason, or power to tell me how I should behave in my condition. 
I think that's an important thing. I want to, can I give a little bit of context about this pool for the folks that sure. are listening? This isn't, mm-hmm. this pool is a mean pool. <laughs> that's what I can describe. <laughs> I mean, like, I've been swimming since I was like four and this pool is, is scary. It's in a big, big room with like no ventilation and the air just reeks of humidity and concrete. And it's got lips that kind of point out towards the pool. So even if you get to the edge, it's really hard to get up and like support mm-hmm. yourself there. And the bottom of this pool just drops out and it's like, I don't know, more than 12 feet deep. I think it was like 16 feet deep. So I, as somebody who can swim very well, was in this pool and often was scared. Um, it's, it's, it's not a friendly pool. <laughs> no, now, it's not. I get scared in that pool and I'm okay. I've, I've been swimming a long time. I know how to get myself to the wall and I know how to get myself out of the pool, but you've got a different experience with that. and so. If both of us had been in a pool, my response is different than yours. It doesn't make your response. I mean, the, your response is very valid. Right. And I think oftentimes that's, I think um, sometimes people struggle with this whole notion of trauma because of their bias. And they would simply say, oh, well, that wouldn't have bothered me. And to that, I would simply say, okay, but your name isn't Brandon Brown. Right. And I think oftentimes what, what people need to understand is people's stories are their stories. People's understandings are their understandings. Like if you're trying to help someone, it's not about converting them to your position, but really trying to understand their position and try to help them see um, how things could be better for them. Okay. Now, can you can you talk a little bit about the difference between trauma and inconvenience because that's something we talked about before and i think that i'm sure that that question is popping up in a lot of people's heads well i I think the bigger thing is that the word traumatized or trauma in and of itself has been somewhat bastardized and that it's kind of it's it's kind of worked its way into our common lexicon in spaces and places where it doesn't belong so we'll hear people like man i had a lot of i had to, to deal with a lot of traffic on the way to work that would traumatize me or someone will say, you know, I was waiting in the line to buy my food at the supermarket. Ooh, that was real traumatizing. <laughs> you know, like, you know, people will just use that in, instead of just simply saying, like, you know, like sometimes you hear a word um, for those that like to practice to be the erudite and use the multisyllabic words. You know, you, you hear just that use erudite <laughs> in a sentence. <laughs> So, I mean, for those people that just, they want to appear that they're learned. So they kind of grab this word and then they use it. But oftentimes what happens is that they're using it within the wrong context. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about trauma, we're talking about something that is a very personal experience that has neurological consequences. That's in and of itself. You know, as we were kind of chatting before, you know, to say that you understand trauma is like saying that you're going to school for business. Or that, you know, you're studying psychology because the whole thing is like, well, what are you studying in business? What are you studying in psychology? You know, there are nearly two dozen forms of just various types of trauma. Um, You know, you have transgenerational trauma. It's possible that I could be living the trauma of my grandparents. You know, you have medical trauma. I could have had a medical procedure in which, you know, that left scars. You know, you you have political trauma. You you have cultural trauma. Um, but the interesting thing, or I would probably say the promising thing that I'm starting to notice is that at least some of the writers and a lot of the uh, some of our current 
TV shows have some awareness of trauma informed. Um, I was just watching Watchmen, and in one of their episodes, they were talking about transgenerational trauma. You know, from time to time in Criminal Minds, you will hear some notion of um, some of the therapeutic responses as it relates to trauma. So, but I think when you have this, uh, the trauma conversation, I think trauma conversations need to be sort of um, paired with, you know, emotional uh, intelligence, as well as, as, as well as some type of cultural awareness or cultural understanding. So Dave, with you being white Irish, me being black, you know, African-American, um, to say that we might see things the same way all the time would be a misnomer. Yeah. Um, but I think understanding our different lenses would then help us understand how to communicate better. And I so think can truly, I, oh, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. I just wanted to build on that. I would say understanding our lenses, but also that we each carry our own biases and, and that we do have places where we've got shared experience because of the type of high school that we went to and the type of classes we took even ones exactly. that we took together, that that's a common, a common meeting point. No, exactly. Um, but the interesting thing is how many people in their sensibilities are willing to realize that someone else's truth is yeah. right. You know? Um, so, I mean, again, just think about all the people that go to business meetings and feel that their voice isn't important. Or, or the people that have to say, they feel like they have to say yes to everything they're told to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, this, this whole notion of I have been put in a system. Um, I have been put in an environment. I have been put in a household um, where I don't believe I have any sense of safety, um, where I don't feel that I can trust anyone. You know, how would someone like that be able to become a thriving adult, a thriving and productive adult. You know, a lot of the research says that um, uh, kids that have been raised in foster care actually suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder more than our vets. And and uh, why? So what? That's just because of the getting switched around, just the whole system, the way the system's treating them. Well, if we were to reduce trauma for a second um, to brain activity, okay. So when we look at humans, humans are one of the only species that actually need touch and attachment to survive. Most other species, when they're born, they're already born near adult. Um, for example, the first task that a giraffe has to do when they walk, excuse me, when they're born is to walk. All right. But for us, that brain that we have, you know, it's, it's a very um, delicate and intricate machine that's being built from the bottom up. Right. So let me just walk you through the brain real quick. Okay. So if if I were to ask you to ball up your fist for a second and look at your wrist, I would ask you a question right now. Like, what are some things that are happening right now in your body that you have no control over? And what would you say? That I have no control over? That you have no control over. Uh, my heartbeat. There you go. So breathing, your respiratory system, your lungs, like all of that stuff. All of that stuff is being controlled by your brainstem. But, but if I took the time to become more aware of it, I think that even clenching my fist, I could find a way to 
make adjustments to my heartbeat through my breathing and everything. Oh else. no, no, no. It's it's not to say it's not to say that certain things can't be modified. Okay. But you don't have control over it. Correct. You can't stop your heartbeat right now. Like you can't stop breathing right now. Right. Your body wouldn't allow you to. Yeah. So all all of that is being controlled by your brainstem. Okay. But it but at some point in time, if you were to look at sort of like that fleshy part underneath your knuckles, at some point in time you're gonna say, I'm tired. At some point in time you're gonna say, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. All of that is being controlled by the midbrain. Okay. Right? So if you were to look at your knuckles part, right, I would say that that is our limbic system. And then I would ask the question, have any of you had the privilege and opportunity of working with either a two-year-old, a teenager, or a senior citizen? What might they have all in common? They all have knuckles. <laughs> yes, and they're also very emotional. Okay. Which means that they're, they're primarily operating out of the limbic system. Okay. And then if we were to look at the top part of that fist, that is what we would call the cortex. Okay. That is where, that is where the, the abstract thinking and the uh, concrete thought actually takes place. Okay. So, so let's just talk about implications for a second. You know, you're coming out of a meeting or whatever, or no, let's even make it simpler. So you're meeting with your supervisor, right? And your supervisor has this brand new idea that you've never become familiar with. And your supervisor is talking to you and you're very frustrated because you're not fully understanding what they're saying. And then as you're walking out the door, the supervisor goes, oh, what do you think? Now, through the experience I've just said, like, you're very, very emotional. Uh -huh. you, can't, you can't answer that question. Now, if your supervisor were... Um, if your supervisor were to ask you, well, how do you feel about this? Like that, that just the, the use of the word feel yeah. is allowing you to kind of sit in that limbic part and, and give a feeling answer. But okay. oftentimes, like if we're in, like if you're tired, how many, how many people do you hear you say like when you're tired or when you're thirsty, I can't think. Yeah. Okay. Or the same thing is like when you're emotional, you can't think. Right. So oftentimes what needs to happen is you've got to recognize where people are as it relates to their brain part. Okay. So that, and that kind of goes back to the emotional intelligence or any kind of social awareness of what's going on with other people and also building skills around language use to right. create more optionality for other people to actually respond with more than just a binary answer. Right. I mean, it, but the thing is, is that if my grandparents were never taught that, if my parents were never taught that, how would I be expected to know that? Yeah. So oftentimes, like, you know, when you came home from school and your parents would ask you how your day was, you'd be like, oh, it was good. Right. But if your parents were to come home and say, you know, like, how did today feel? And you were like, all right, it was good. But then what if you said, what if your parents were like, well, how was today? And they said, and you said, you know what? It was a little challenging, right? Now, yeah. what's the difference between good and challenging? Challenging gives you the ability to, for your parents to actually ask questions. I mean, when people say things like, it's good, it's okay, um, you know, like, where do you go with that? Like, how do you put your hooks in that? You can't. Yeah. 
So oftentimes when in situations like that, that's where I'm asking people to understand the difference between a state and an emotion. But here's the thing. I can only share emotions with people that I feel safe and and have a level of trust with. Well, and there's a social, I guess, structures. I don't, it's not the right word, but like, I'm, you know, when you're talking about being a little kid and being asked how your day was, um, I'm I'm just thinking back on that. I don't ever remember feeling that like that question was like you are allowed or supposed to say anything other than like it sucked or it was fine. Like you no. weren't supposed to go into the the details any more than that executive saying, you know, what do you think is actually if they're asking you that when you're walking out the door, they don't really want an answer. So the interesting thing is if you feel that you've gone through your entire life without having any any power over your own narrative or believing yes. that you you have any level of agency why would anything else be different right why would you've I, got why trauma would I, it's it's possible <laughs> you know i would i look at Sorry. it i look at it like i look at it like this i feel that you know everybody somewhere on the spectrum has um has experienced some level of trauma um whether it's uh, conscious or unconscious um, I mean, I, two, one of the um, ones that I'm really, really fascinated by is this whole notion of unprocessed memory. Okay. And that is, what if something were to happen to me, but it happened to me before I was preverbal? Okay. Right. So, or like something might have happened to me that happened, like where I didn't have the ability of, of complex thought. And then the whole notion is like, well, how does that sit with you? How does that sort of uh, rewrite the narrative yeah. and, and, and change the behavior? You know, like you'll hear people say something like, I don't know why I don't like dogs. Right. Right. Or I don't know why I don't like mangoes, you know, but in truth, Let's just say that, you know, a baby was, you know, a mother was feeding a baby like a little sliver of a mango and the kid almost choked. Yeah. Rest of the life, the kid doesn't want to eat mangoes. And doesn't know why. Yeah. Mm -mm, doesn't know why. But perhaps after some exploration and talking with people that they felt safe and trust with, they'd be like, oh, well, you had an incident with a mango when you were younger. But the thing is, is that like all you can remember is the consequence. Yeah. You don't remember the cause. Like you're living out the consequence, but you don't remember the cause. Okay. So um, are many of our systems traumatized? Possibly. You know, when you look at the educational system, when you look at the political system, when you look at the business constructs, you know, um, a lot of times people are told to do things even at cost to self. But the question is, is what is that cost? How many people have you heard of in your spaces where people have reached the pinnacle and just said, you know what, this isn't for me. I don't, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. I'm not happy. I'm gone. You know, so, so go ahead. I was just, uh, sorry. It's just, it's really stuck in my head. Um, you were just talking about unconscious memories and I'm thinking about companies. I, I work with a lot of people who are companies that have like a department or whatever that demands this thing be done, some process or practice. And when you ask why, they don't even know why because the people who put it in place are gone. But right. it's that habit that is expected to continue. And that's kind of the same thing then, right? Right. 
Now, here's the, here's the thing that I want to be clear about, is that this always doesn't have to be negative. I mean, if you think about it, we weren't washing our hands every time we did things, you know, a couple decades ago, right? So sometimes, you know, change can come, sometimes there can be growth out of, out of challenge. But in certain settings, like to do something just to do it without being the, without being given the opportunity um, to speak about it or to always be caught up in situations or systems where you feel you have no voice or agency. Like, what do you think that would do to somebody over an extended period of time? It's going to make that, I mean, for the stuff that, that the people I'm working with, what we're trying to teach them, it's going to make that impossible for them to do what we're asking them to do, which is rise up to this, take ownership of things, be creative and take risks. Well, the only word that I would probably disagree with you in that is that it, it's not impossible because okay. you can't, in order to have a balanced conversation about trauma, you can have trauma on one side, but then you have to have hope and resiliency on the other. I mean, whether you want to believe that everybody has certain levels of resiliency, that resiliency is innate or resiliency can be taught or it's the combination of thereof. But I also think that you have to understand that this thing called hope isn't something that's tangible, but that it's real. So the whole thing is like, Dave, I could pour hope into you until your hope kicks in. So can and you I, give me an example? Because that's something that I think people who are listening to this are going to be very curious about. Like how, because we deal so, with that all the time. People just don't believe change is possible. They don't believe that anybody's ever going to listen. Nothing will ever get better. I have to do all these things. It's just like, there is no hope. Well, but the thing is, is that someone has to, and, and oftentimes, unfortunately, in, in, when we talk about, if we're looking at this strictly on the business sense, yeah. This is where, you know, the board and upper leadership and supervisors have to make the change. Okay. Because I think sometimes when people are asking questions, they're asking questions not for really answer, but just to check off a list. But the right. thing is, if you, if you really want to, if you really want to know how people are feeling about something is that, have you really created an environment where I can express myself and it will be accepted without thoughts of retribution? You know? Um, do we have, has a space actually been, um, created where, um, my position, uh, my history, my narrative can actually be thought of as values or valuable and assets to the community or to the organization at large? I mean, that for me becomes the bigger question. And if the answer is no, then we've got to find a way to create those types of moments. Right. And I think what happens is that, you know, we no longer live in the society where it's about just sort of grin and bear it. You yeah. know, we no longer live in a society um, where people just have to take things. But the whole, the whole notion is that if you, if you want to get things done, the, then the question just becomes, how does it get done? Now, I have to be honest and share that typically when people take a trauma-informed approach to things, it's usually the opposite of how you were taught. So if you look at the medical field or if you look at social work, like a lot of times you are taught just to go in and answer questions to check off the list so you can make the assessment as quick as possible. Right. But when you look at this through a trauma-informed or a trauma-sensitive lens, it's really about, well, what can I do to make the relationship stronger? Like, how are my active listening skills? 
Okay. And the way and the way that I talk about active listening is just very simple. If you're thinking about your response while someone is talking, you're not active listening. Okay. Like, I just I just kind of I leave it there. Because oftentimes people are so concerned with their positions that they're not really listening to the person and they're just waiting for the gap so that they can continue the conversation that they want to have. Right. So, you know, um, do I understand that the use of questions might be the antagonist for, for creating connection? You know, I feel that arguments can be made and have been made is that sometimes when people are asking questions, it's really their attempt to move a conversation at their pace instead of the person that wanted to talk. Okay. You know, so, but here's the thing. Um, might some of this take longer? Yes. And oftentimes in a lot of these systems, things quote unquote have to get done within a certain period of time because it's all about product pr productivity and turnover. Right. But what if doctors or what if social workers were given uh, a supplemental way or anybody that's dealing with people in general. I, I don't want to just pick on doctors and social workers, but what if um, entities that worked with people said, you know what, why don't we talk about the, in the integration of another principle or a philosophy or framework um, that will give us a greater yield over a longer period of time? You know, because if it's really about relationships, then you need to understand that the first thing that I have to do to demonstrate that I want to be in a relationship with you professionally is that I have to understand that you're a human. Okay. Right. And then I have to, I have to make sure that in this space, you feel that you are valued. And it's not about gimmicks. And I'm not, and I'm not going to come at any companies that do really well with retention but yet and still their their staff feel that they don't have the ability yeah. to voice to to voice their opinion. This would work at, at a company level as well as like a team level or interpersonal level. Inside yes. or outside of work. I mean it, it's it's you're going to have to build up these moments of hope until they can kind of topple over onto the some of the negative impact of these little traumas that you talked about. Exactly. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and I think the example that I gave of hope is sort of, um, you know, those, um, those uh, when they do the, the champagne glass um, fixtures and the champagne just pours down and fills up the other glasses. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. So, uh, but the interesting thing is that somebody's got to do the pouring. Okay. And that you would think like, oh, the champagne's not going to get all the way down to the bottom, but yes, the champagne will make it to the bottom. Yeah. And, you know, whether we're looking at this through trauma or we're looking at this through business, you know, it's, it's just really just this whole notion of, there are several notions really. It's just these notions of agency, these notions of hope. Um, that, you know, I was brought in here to do a job and I should be allowed to do it. But sometimes, but sometimes culture, agency culture, or organizational culture, or the founder's complex doesn't really allow that. Because the thing that you have to understand about the trauma conversation, it's barely 20 years old. We weren't. The only time that they were really talking about trauma before that was we were talking about it just as it related to war.
Yeah. And that, and it was, it was very, very limited. So we weren't looking at everyday life as a form of, or expression of trauma. Wow. You know, we weren't looking at foster care as, as probably one of the primary sources of trauma, period. You know, um, and the, the interesting thing is that when you look at people like, you know, Bruce Perry or Sandra, Sandra, um, Sandra Bloom, uh, or more contemporary people like Diane Wagonall or Brene Brown uh, or Sandra Burke Harris, you know, all of these individuals are just trying to say like, look, if you want to help people, you've got to help yourself first. Yeah. Like if you want to understand others, you have to understand yourself first. So, uh, I, I think that's oftentimes where uh, we get lost in this. You know, you're in the airplane and you're with the kid and then you hear the, the, the dreaded, in the event of air pressure, uh, your, your mask will drop. Who are you supposed to put the mask on first? On yourself. Right. So the question then becomes if, if agencies or systems say that they want certain things to happen, have the agencies or systems actually created space or, or brave conversations for those things to happen? Or are they just really trying to check off? Or, or yelling at the other person to tell them to put on their mask because they're the problem and they're the one that needs the damn oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some, sometimes, you know, I, sometimes I, I find it a challenge when you're dealing with a child who has... Um, perhaps some behavioral challenges. Right. But people don't want to look at the fact that the child had to have gotten the behavior from somewhere. Yeah. You know, and, but then this takes us down the slippery road that, you know, most times um, because of the shame and guilt that a parent might feel um, that their child might have a challenge. Um you know that that just opens up to a home that that that's another that's yeah another we'll save that for another one because <laughs> there's i mean this is going to be a number of conversations there's a lot that we can talk about and what i was hoping i i hope we've done it in this in this first interview is to just talk about the idea of it and raise more awareness of it where do you have any suggestions for where people can go if they want to start to understand more about the language of trauma or just gain oh. any kind of awareness of it well, like I said, I would, um, I would definitely look up, you know, like Bruce Perry. Okay. Um, I would look up Sandra Bloom. Um, I would look up uh, Nadine Burke Harris. Um, but it always doesn't have to be a trauma conversation as it could be like conversations just around vulnerability. Yeah. Um, to that, I would say Brene Brown. Um, but there are a lot of good um, books and TED Talks and articles that are out there. And, and I, I think here's the interesting thing. Um, the, the trauma conversation is a very subjective conversation. So again, it's possible, Dave, that you and I could go through the exact same trauma trainings, but come at it, come at it with different understandings. Yeah. So the whole thing is that it, as long as you're rooted in the information, 
And, you know, they're all, you know, and I would tell people that they need to be critical just because someone says that they are talking about trauma doesn't mean that they are talking about trauma. I guess the question is, are they more so trying to sell something? Yeah. You know, but um, I am always critical of experts. I feel that when someone deems themselves an expert, they've stopped learning. You're like the fourth fourth podcast, I think, in the last three months where the people have on the, that I've interviewed have said that, which I completely echo that. I think that's really important. Well, the whole thing is, remember how many teachers that we had in the 80s that were teaching the same way in the 60s? Yeah, but we're all students. I mean, we're constantly trying to learn. I think... Uh, but, good. But I would just say that some people, some people give blind faith to the teacher. And I think some people give blind faith to the expert. Okay. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the teacher and the expert abuse that blind yeah. faith by not doing due diligence, by not making sure that their teachings are current, by not making sure that I'm more so making connections with my class rather than just to sit there and listen to myself talk for 45 minutes. Yeah. So is, let me see if, if this makes sense. So I, I would say to what you're saying about being, about being critical, critical but hold space for other opinions than your own. All right. And yeah, yeah. Like, always, I'm, always try to learn from everyone around you. I mean, and yeah, the thing where people kind of defer to the expert that makes me super nervous. Like I would be hoping that even in our conversation today, that there would be people that would agree with some things that have been said and disagree with some things that have been said. Yeah. But I wouldn't expect anybody to listen to the podcast and say, I, I agreed with, everything that i heard now I granted you, you and you and i are great but i don't i don't, I don't <laughs> think we would but, i don't think we would, we would warrant that and we were also raised in an educational system that supports the idea of challenging everything um you know as long what i always tell people was as long as your question was phrased logically you could you could debate anything you wanted but oh, if yes. your argument was flawed you were screwed oh well if you have <laughs> that's a different conversation, but people yeah. that, people that know me, I just simply would say like, you know, your hypothesis, your, 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 just everything about what you're saying is incorrect. <laughs> and but we save space for them anyway, to be incorrect. Yes. Like I, I, I was just talking <laughs> with a group of, I was talking with a group of people yesterday and I said, you know, your ability to answer questions needs to be improved. Well, that's very politely said. That's good. Um, I was like, because if you learn how to answer, if you learn how to ask questions, and I know that I was just saying that asking questions is kind of, but I'm just talking about just in in dialogue, in in development, not right. as it necessarily relates to listening to individuals. Um, that the ability that to to construct the right question can be so um, beneficial yeah. to everyone involved, and an ongoing effort. I feel like I'm always trying to get better at that. Um, but if I grew up in a system where I can't ask questions, where's my voice? Where's my agency? Yeah. Where's my narrative? That's going to be a hard thing. Well, you're going to need some hope. Yeah. But all right, we're wrapping it up now. So no more about hope. Um, <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I am on LinkedIn. That would be uh, Brandon R. Brown. I am also on Twitter. That would be B underscore PBS. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook. Brandon Brown. Um, my picture on 
which I, I believe you still have the information. Yeah, I'm going to include, I've got all that stuff and I'm going to yeah. put the picture with, with the podcast post yeah. as well. So all of that was, is the same. All right. And we're going to keep having these conversations, digging into different aspects of this. Yes. And I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Oh no, this was great. Thank you for taking time. Um, yeah. And I'll see you uh, when I get to Philly in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks, man. You're welcome.